Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and this is the 108th program in this series. In the previous message, I was in John chapter 17, verses 7 through 11, and what I was spending time focusing on was the end of verse 11, when Jesus was praying to God, he was praying to the Father, that the disciples may continue in unity. In verse 11, Jesus said, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keeping through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And I was explaining in the previous message that they were going to be one according to what they believed. If they believed the truth as Jesus proclaimed the truth, and that was one of the roles that Jesus had in their lives, was that he was the person who defined the truth. What he defined, what he conveyed, was what he had received from the Father. He was God manifested in the flesh, but he was there to live as a man, not as God. And so this was how he described the transaction of relating the truth of God to others. Now, the disciples, they had a bond with one another because they believed things that were true, that were genuine, that were real. And they could have unity with one another in an eternal context because once they physically died, they would then go before their God and they would have a place in the kingdom of heaven. They believed that which God conveyed. But those who have unity with one another on the basis of false doctrines, on the basis of things that are not true, when they go before their God, they're going to discover that they don't have that kind of unity in an eternal context. They had unity with other people who believed things that were not true. They experienced unity with others. But they did not experience genuine unity with their God. So if this unity through distorted beliefs survives long enough for a person to physically die, then they will discover that they don't have a genuine unity with their God. But often these relationships do not survive because they are not based on that which is true. They are not based on that which is real. If they do survive, in general, they survive for other reasons besides the truth. And there are people who have relationships with one another for reasons other than the truth that God has revealed or whether or not they believe common doctrines. But I'm not able to get into examples related to that in this message because I want to go back and look at some of these verses with a little bit more detail. Consider, for example, verse 4, when Jesus said that he completed the work which his God had given him to do. Well, in verse 8, we do have a description of part of the work 
that Jesus did. For example, in verse 8, he said, For I have given to them the words which you have given me. He conveyed the truth to the disciples to the extent that they were able to receive what he had to say. Now, keep in mind that they do not have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within them. And because of that, they certainly are not going to be able to understand that much, but they can understand some things. Now, in comparison, once they are made spiritually alive, it will be as if they knew nothing. Because what the Lord can reveal to a person when they are spiritually alive is much different than what he can reveal to them when they are spiritually dead. So while Jesus did accomplish some great things in being able to tell the disciples some great and important things, those things are not anywhere near as profound as what he will be able to share with someone who has been made spiritually alive through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And I've spent a lot of time in the previous program speaking about this already. Continuing in verse 8, when he said, For I have given to them the words which you have given to me, and they have received them. Now, it was their decision to receive the words. That is not a work of Jesus directly. It is a work in the sense that he gave them the words to be received, but they were the ones who made the decision to receive the words that were given to them. Now, this is open-ended in terms of a description, and so we cannot say too much about, well, what does that mean, considering the circumstances and the condition that they were in? What I would say that means in general is that they will remember what Jesus had to say, but to what degree this would be an integral part of their lives, that we don't have enough information to go on. Continuing in verse 8, Jesus said, And have known surely that I came forth from you. So the disciples knew that Jesus came forth from God. Now, this is important. It is. And this is part of the work that Jesus came to do, that they would know that he came forth from God, that he is the Messiah. Now, to understand him as God manifested in the flesh, that's a little bit more detail, and we don't have enough to go on to say that they really captured that in the way that I think that he wanted them to capture and understand. But they at least knew this. Okay, they knew that Jesus came forth from God. Well, that's a good start. At the end of verse 8, Jesus said, and they have believed that you sent me. Well, that's that's nice. That's good. They believe that God sent Jesus. They believe that he came forth from God. They believe the words that he has had to say, which, of course, have some substantial limitations, considering the condition that they are in and considering the covenant that is in effect. But this is a description of a part of what Jesus came to accomplish, about what God came to accomplish at this time in history, at this time in the relationship between God and humanity. Now, the disciples could have unity with one another on these fundamental truths, right? They could believe that God sent Jesus. So, those who believe that God sent Jesus 
have something that they can hold on to, which is true, and they can have unity with one another because they all believe that God sent Jesus. That's a good start. They can all believe that Jesus came forth from God. Another way to describe that God sent him. They can have unity with one another because not only have they heard the words from Jesus, but they have embraced them. They are remembering them. They are considering those things to be true. But when you consider this kind of unity, you need to remember that this is under the Old Covenant and that the truths that Jesus conveyed were related to what it would mean to live according to the Old Covenant. The New Covenant is about to go into effect. So they do have unity to a certain extent, but that unity, according to these truths, is going to change. When the New Covenant goes into effect, there is going to be a change. And for them to have unity with one another, they're going to have to embrace the covenant that goes into effect when Jesus dies and resurrects from the dead and makes them spiritually alive through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. There are going to be a whole lot of new truths to embrace when this happens. Consider Judas, who Jesus will refer to in just a moment as being the one who he lost. He lost Judas. Why? Why did he lose Judas? It appears that Judas believed that God sent Jesus, that Jesus came forth from God. Judas received the words from Jesus that we are to live in obedience to the law. What was it really that Judas believed that was different from what the disciples believed? We don't have enough information to really say that there was a significant difference between what Judas believed and what the other disciples believed. When Judas decided to betray Jesus, he betrayed Jesus for reasons that we can only speculate on because we don't have certainty concerning what those reasons really were. But what we do know is that things did not turn out like Judas thought they would to the extent where he committed suicide. Obviously, that was not part of his initial plan when he betrayed Jesus. So I have proposed... In some previous messages that I have presented, I have proposed that Judas just simply wanted to put Jesus into a circumstance where Jesus would have to either assert himself as the messianic king or they were going to kill him. He decided to allow himself to be killed and through that he provided for the forgiveness for the sins of the world and invoked the new covenant because God would remember our sins no more, and we would now be able to invoke the new covenant as was described by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. In verse 34, all of this will be possible because I will remember their sins no more. So the disciples, they had unity, and Jesus was praying in verse 11 that their unity would continue, that they would continue to have unity with one another. But in order for that to take place, they're going to have to embrace the new truths that are going to be the definition of the new relationship according to the new covenant that is about to go into effect. Now, we don't have enough information to know to what degree 
the disciples really understood what Jesus accomplished, we don't know to what degree they really understood the new covenant. But there are some things that we can see with regards to what happened afterwards if we go through the book of Acts. For example, we can tell that the disciples do not move forward very well with the new covenant. It takes some time for them to grow in the understanding of what Jesus accomplished. Consider Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, when Peter discovered that a Gentile could be saved without first becoming a Jew. We can also tell, especially through the description in Acts chapter 15, that James seemed to assert the leadership role in the new church. Well, what's he doing there? This is James, the Lord's brother. He was not a part of Jesus' ministry before Jesus died. You have the disciples who had unity with one another, according to these beliefs, and you would think that based on this unity that they had with one another and their continued growth and their transitions that we would expect them to go through as part of what Jesus did, that one of them ought to take their leadership role in the early church, but none of them did. Not in the way that James did. So what is he doing there? Why is it that he is the one who is leading the church and defining the unity of the brethren, especially when he decrees in Acts chapter 15 how they were going to settle the conflict between the Apostle Paul and everybody else who was there in Jerusalem? How were they going to respond to the Gentiles believing in Jesus but not living according to Pharisaical Judaism, which is what the early church ended up doing. So the early church may have continued with a sense of unity, but they needed a lot more. They needed a lot more to go on besides what Jesus said here in John chapter 17, verse 8. Things like, God sent Jesus. Well, okay, that's good. Jesus came forth from God. Yeah, okay, Jesus had some things to say. His words were spoken and they were received. What did he say? What should we recognize? We need to recognize that he taught the covenant that was in effect at that time. And for the early church to continue to perpetuate the old covenant, as was described by Jesus, separated them from the work that the apostle Paul did with the Gentile churches as they grew in their understanding of what the new covenant is about. And so the unity between the churches under the Apostle Paul and the church that was in Jerusalem, headed up by James, whom the disciples apparently allowed to lead their church, there was a lack of unity between these two different sets of people. James himself effectively told Paul, look, you just go ahead and you can have the Gentiles just leave the Jews to us. This is not unity. This is division. And those things have to do with what the differences are between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. This is the beginning of the church. And this has been the reality of the church ever since. For centuries now, this has been a continual struggle in the church, a division between those 
who live by the old covenant and those who live by the new covenant. And there are a lot of people who say that they live by the new covenant, but in reality and in practice and according to their fundamental beliefs, by default, they technically do believe and live by the old covenant or a part of the old covenant, a subset. Not all the laws, not all the ceremonial, sacrificial, and sacramental issues, but some of them, the ones that they can make work. And then a few others by traditions that have evolved over time. But this division, this separation between the Gentile churches that were growing through the work of the Apostle Paul, the separation between them and the church in Jerusalem, was very real. You can see this in Galatians when Paul described his confrontation with those who had come from James. He even confronted Peter right to his face. Galatians chapter 2, these guys, James, Peter, John, they added nothing to my faith. In fact, he had a conflict with them. And so there was a lack of unity right from the start. And this lack of unity has existed ever since, and it's going to continue. It's not going to go away. The church will always be divided according to these different beliefs, because these are transitions that people go through. People have to struggle with the issues of the law in order to really embrace the life under the new covenant. You have to struggle with the issues related to, do I live according to the knowledge of good and evil, or do I live according to the inheritance? It's very difficult to really embrace the life under the inheritance until after you've had a time of struggle of trying to live according to the knowledge of good and evil. These are normal transitions that people go through as they grow in the knowledge of the truth and the discovery of who their God is and how he relates to us. Now, going back to verse 11, this is John chapter 17, verse 11. Jesus said, now I am no longer in the world. This is important to recognize because this is a description of our God no longer living as a man. His time of living as a man ended. It was over. When he died and he resurrected from the dead, his experience of living as a man came to an end. Jesus is no longer in the world. Now, he does dwell within us. That is what makes us spiritually alive. But that is understood as Jesus is God. God is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. So it is correct to say that Jesus is in our heart. Jesus lives in us. It's correct to say that. But it's a limited description of the magnitude of our God. And this limited description is appropriate in certain contexts. Because when we say that, we say that with a certain definition, such as to say that Jesus is in my heart, says that the person who revealed my God is in my heart, and so he reveals my God. 
the person who taught the law. He is there. So when I say Jesus is in my heart, I say that in a definition of the person or the way that God related at that time. And in this sense, that person is still alive and he is within me, but he's not in the world in the same way that he was in the world before. So our God has unified himself in the sense that before he revealed himself as the Father, as the Son, as the Holy Spirit, but now that all of that has been accomplished and we can see him in small pieces at a time, a little bit here and a little bit there, once we are ready to put them all together under the same person as our understanding of the same person, then it's reasonable to say that Jesus is no longer in the world. He's just not. He is in a certain sense, but he's not in another sense. In this other sense that he is not, he is not because our God is one person and our God dwells within us. When Jesus died and he was no longer in the world, there's no longer any opportunity for Jesus to pray to the Father. You're not going to hear Jesus praying to God today. That doesn't make any sense. He is God. He just stopped functioning as the man Jesus when he died. But that doesn't mean that he was annihilated or evaporated or just suddenly disappeared. It just means that he's now going to function as an individual person. And his unity is with himself. So he's no longer in the world in the way that he once was, and he never will be ever again. That is a change. That is a transition. Continuing in verse 11, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Now, when he says, I come to you, Holy Father, he came, he then became one with himself again, such that there is no distinction anymore. There's no reason for a distinction between the Father and the Son anymore. That work was finished. Now, his disciples remained in the world for a while until they physically died. And then there were new believers who were in the world. And Jesus, as our God, as the Holy Spirit, dwelled within those people, making them spiritually alive. And so he was in the world in them. He could reach out to the world through the people. Through the Spirit, he changed from a physical presence to a spiritual presence. And as the spiritual presence of our God in unity with himself, our God is one. He, as the Holy Spirit, dwelled within his people to lead them and guide them into all truth. And he also interacted with the people of the world as the Holy Spirit, to convict the world of sin. Sin in the sense that they did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and as he also described in the previous verses concerning the role of the Holy Spirit in the world, which I spoke about in a previous message. So in verse 11, when he said, And I come to you, Holy Father, that is the description of an end of God relating to the world as Jesus, as Jesus, the man 
who was there living at that time. Keep through your name those whom you have given me. He said, keep through your name, not through the name of Jesus, but through the name of the living God, the one, the person who has a name that no one knows, no one can pronounce. It is an abstraction. We are kept together, not by the name of Jesus in that context, but we are kept together by the name of our God in his fullness. So in Jesus, we have an abstraction of a portion, a part of our God. But in the name of our God, the name that we do not know, in that name, we are kept together in the additional truths that were beyond what Jesus was able to present. Jesus was able to present many important truths, but that is not what keeps the unity of the church today. Not in reality, not in the new covenant. The unity of the church today is accomplished through the truth that is conveyed by our God in addition to what Jesus conveyed. That was the beginning, but that was the old covenant and the closure of it, not the new covenant and the beginning of it. And I will continue with this in the next program. Thank you for listening. This is the 108th program in the verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. In this program, I spend a little bit more time in John chapter 17, verses 7 through 11, where I spoke a little bit more about the subject of unity, that the disciples did have unity with one another concerning the common belief that they had as Jesus presented the Old Covenant, and he presented himself as someone who God sent. But this unity was not going to last because a new covenant was about to go into effect and they needed to grow in their knowledge and understanding of the new covenant that would go into effect as a result of his death. That because of his death, Jesus provided for the forgiveness of sins for the world. This would change a lot and they would have to have unity on the basis of their common belief in the forgiveness of sins. And I will continue into John chapter 17, verse 12, in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Thank you.